If you've been enriched by the content on the podcast this year, would you consider making a year-end gift to help support the ongoing ministry of Think Biblically? Your support will make a difference and will allow us to continue providing this resource to you and to others at no cost. To make a gift online, visit giving.biola.edu. That's giving.biola.edu. And be sure to designate your gift to the Think Biblically podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Have a wonderful holiday season. Welcome to the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. I'm your host, Scott Ray, Dean of Faculty and Professor of Christian Ethics at Talbot School of Theology here at Biola University. Our guest today is uh, Mr. Lawrence Reed, who is the President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Uh, He has actually just recently stepped down from that role, uh, though I don't think it's quite accurate to say that you're retired, uh, because you've got lots of projects, particularly writing writing projects that you're looking forward to doing over the next few years. So, uh, Larry, welcome uh, to our time today. Uh, you are, you've spent a lot of time thinking about a very provocative topic that uh, you'll be speaking about uh, later at Acton University, uh, entitled, Was Jesus a Socialist? And so I appreciate the opportunity to ask you some questions about that and to flesh that out a bit for our listeners. So My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Scott. I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, let's, let's first define what you mean by socialism so that we're all on the same page yes. as we begin this discussion. I'm very glad you started with that question, Scott, because uh, the views of what socialism is are all over, all over the lot. Some people think socialism is just uh, helping people, sharing things with people, doing good. Uh, but, of course, all of those things you can do under capitalism. Uh, so uh, that's not enough of a definition. I think socialism should be defined as a system in which you have central planning of the economy by the government or government ownership of the means of production or the forcible redistribution of income by the government. And in most cases, when you have socialism, you've got some of all three. And, of course, the most uh, uh, extreme versions will have all three, where the government runs everything, owns everything, and redistributes wealth according to its liking. Uh, In any event, no matter what version of socialism or the degree to which you have it uh, may be, uh, the distinguishing feature of socialism is force. Uh, If it's voluntary, it's not socialism. You can do that under capitalism. What differentiates socialism is that for those various purposes that I mentioned, government is the main player and it uses coercion or the threat of it to do its job. Okay. I think that's a helpful definition, especially those three prongs Mm -hmm. that are to it. Um, I wonder if maybe the the best way to define socialism would be to to shatter some misconceptions and tell us what it's not. You said it's not just the desire to help people. That's right. Okay. Are there other things, are there other misconceptions about socialism that we need to debunk here at the start? Well, I think most, if not all, of those misconceptions come down uh, in some form to the idea that government is going to be helpful to people. It's going to give them health care. It's going to provide them employment. It's going to give them security and assuredness uh, for their economic lives and so forth. In one version or another, that's what it reduces to. But what distinguishes it from any other system, from capitalism in particular, is how that is to be done. Uh, And socialism does it by means of the concentration of power in the hands of government. It doesn't do it by 
voluntary civil society organizations, by uh, mutually beneficial free commerce in the marketplace. Th those are attributes of, of capitalism. Socialism does the job it's supposed to do, uh, no matter how poorly uh, or how well it does it through coercion, through force. Okay. All right. So what, what countries would you say are predominantly socialist economies today around the world? Give us an example of some of those. I wish I could give you an example of one that is both socialist and that is a model in some way, but uh, those two things don't seem to go together. The most extreme uh, application of socialism would be in such places as North Korea, where the government is in charge of everything. Uh, close behind would be places like Cuba or Venezuela. Now, some people mistakenly claim that Scandinavia is uh, socialist, Denmark, Sweden, Finland, Norway. Uh, they have extensive welfare states, but they're really not socialists. They have globalized economies, lots of private ownership. Uh, you know, I have reasons to object to some of the welfare statism and its effects, but they're not quite socialism. So if you really want true socialism, I'm sorry, you're going to have to look at countries that uh, frequently employ the use of force to do things, even if they seem to be good things to do. Okay, so there really aren't a whole lot of examples of, of more of the, the pure socialist ideal being practiced today. No, there really aren't. And uh, those countries that dabble in some degree of socialism, usually if they seem to be doing well, it's not because of the socialism they have, it's because of the capitalism they haven't yet destroyed. So even those uh, halfway houses still depend uh, for what capitalism they have left uh, to, to pay the bills of the socialism they have. So it sounds like what you're suggesting is if, if we looked at this on a continuum mm -hmm. of pu pure socialism on one end and pure capitalism on the other, that most economies are some are mixed. That's right. And <clears throat> they belong somewhere along this continuum. Exactly. I think that's that describes overwhelmingly uh, most of the countries of the world. Now, Let's, let's go more to your back to the New Testament part, which is sort of the, the heart of what you're going to be talking about here at Acton. Um, what, what in the New Testament makes people think that Jesus was a socialist? Some people think that, uh, again, socialism is sharing, it's caring, it's compassion, it's uh, just people helping people. And if that's what you think, then uh, you might be inclined to believe that Jesus was a socialist because he talked about caring for the poor and so forth. But he never once advocated uh, the tools that socialism uses to do those things. He never advocated for the concentration of power. He never advocated for the government ownership of the means of production or the forcible redistribution of wealth. Uh, or the central planning of an economy. I mean, he, uh, first of all, he was interested in other things, uh, your soul, first and foremost. Uh, but in uh, on earthly matters, uh, Jesus never suggested in any way uh, that he was calling for the use of concentrated political force to do good things. Okay, so it sounds like if, if, if I asked you to finish the sentence, Jesus was not a socialist because he never that, that would be the main that thing. That would be it, absolutely. Never advocated the, uh, the use of uh, concentrated political force to get something done. Okay, but Jesus did advocate what I would refer to as sort of extreme voluntary generosity, where his followers were 
pretty clearly mandated to hold all their possessions pretty loosely. Um, but you say, but that's that's a far cry from what you're describing as socialism. Oh yeah, I mean, he, he never said, uh, and if you don't do it, I'm going to call Caesar and have him force you to do it. Uh, he felt very strongly that uh, a person doing something good from his own heart uh, is that's what he was looking for. That makes all the difference in the world. You don't make somebody a uh, religious person by taking him to church at gunpoint. Uh, you want an interchange. You want, uh, uh, from within a person, a, a, a rebirth and renaissance in such things as character and compassion. That's what makes all the difference in the world. Jesus was more interested in what's in your heart than he was in you know, what you wanted a, a politician to do. Uh, that, that didn't concern him much at all. I think that strikes most people as, as intuitively pretty correct, that if... You know, if you're if you're mandating me to do something and you're you're twisting my arm yeah. in order to get me to take out my wallet and give some money to the homeless guy down the street, yeah. that sort of wipes out the virtue. Oh, absolutely. It, for me. Yeah, and what uh, we should really want uh, in society is people who do the right thing, do the compassionate thing because they want to, not because they have to, not because there's a gun at their back. But the cynic would say, if we just left it to that. Most people are not going to do that. Uh, you hear that a lot. But I reject the idea that government is more compassionate than the people uh, it supposedly represents. Uh, there are a lot of temptations within government that often take uh, good, good people and grind them up. So if anything, I, I think as a rule, government is less compassionate than the ordinary citizen, less capable even of providing real care to a person in need. When you and I do it, we're interested in things like accountability. We're interested in the person. We're interested in suffering with them, uh, getting to know them. Uh, government just writes a check and pops it in the mail. I mean, that, that uh, often takes a problem and makes it worse, not better. Right. I, I appreciate that. That's the idea of compassion, which is to suffer with someone, yes. as you know. Yeah. Uh, and it's the idea that we have a relationship with the person that we're, we're showing compassion towards. That's right. Uh, all right, but let's, let's go to the early church. Um, I've heard a lot of people suggest that the early church held all their possessions in common uh, and that Ananias and Sapphira, for example, yeah. uh, that sounds a lot like the forcible redistribution of, <laughs> of wealth and property uh, from that, that text in Acts 6 when they held something back and there were... Yeah. There were pretty serious consequences for them on that. Yeah, that sounds that sounds a lot like coercion to me. How do you, how do you understand the early church? Yeah, and they're, you know, as Acts describes that, holding all things in common. That's right. Well, it's clear from subsequent passages that although the early Christians were uh, expected to hold uh, much in common and not to focus on material wealth that they didn't uh, uh, sell everything they had because they continued to meet, in many cases, in their own private homes. Uh, but you have to consider the context, too. This is a new faith uh, in a hostile land occupied by uh, foreigners, who uh, Romans in this case, who uh, did not like the idea of these uh, uh, religions popping up and challenging, perhaps, uh, Roman authority. And so it was very important that the early Christians have certain standards in order to be convincing, persuasive, and maybe even to keep them out of trouble sometimes from the Roman authorities. There's nothing in the New Testament that says 
the way the earliest of Christians were expected to conduct their economic affairs is therefore the way that all people in all times are to conduct their affairs. There's nothing in Christ never said, uh, okay, you, you folks, we need you to behave this way, and therefore 2,000 years from now, we want everybody doing the same. He, they had certain standards they had to meet at that time to uh, get the faith off the ground. So you have to consider the okay, context. But, but you would hold that there are certain moral principles, certain virtues that do transcend time and culture, like their like their generosity. Oh yeah, uh, I think that's, the, you know their lack of materialism. You know, think things like that. That's right. Uh, but see, I I think that uh, to be truly generous. One has to do it of his own free will Voluntary. and of his own money. You're not generous just because the government uh, tells you you have to do it or because you support a politician who says he'll get it done for you. You know, Larry, a lot of people today are very skeptical about the accumulation of wealth, particularly about the exercise of power that goes mm-hmm. with that. Now, I, I think in, in, the, in the first century when mm-hmm. Jesus and the early church were around, I think the order was a little different than today because mm-hmm. power was used in order to accumulate wealth. Yes. Where I think today it's more accumulated wealth is used as yes. a means of exercising power. Yeah. Um, and in some cases it, it just reflects cronyism and yeah. you know, protecting yourself from competition. Yeah. Um, but there are a lot of people who hold that, you know, the, that the Bible teaches that the accumulation of wealth itself is morally problematic, especially when you have so many needs mm-hmm. that could be met. How do you understand the scripture on that? I don't see the Bible in any way as suggesting the mere accumulation of wealth per se is is wrong or, or bad. I think uh, what determines whether it's right or wrong is how you come about the wealth and uh, what you do with it. I mean, if you've come about it through the use of political connections where political power is employed to maybe stifle your competition or to get something from people that you wouldn't otherwise freely get in the marketplace, then, yeah, I'd I'd be the first to blow the whistle on that. Um, And if you use your wealth, even if it's uh, obtained entirely through voluntary, peaceful, productive means, but then you use it to buy political power, I'd say you're crossing a line, that that's a bad thing, too. So it all depends on how you come about it, uh, if it's free, legitimate, voluntary, peaceful, uh, fine. Uh, it's, it's a measurement of how much uh, typically you've contributed to the rest of society. Uh, but just don't use it once you get it to oppress people through your alliance with those in political power. Right. Now, that, yeah, I think that's, that's a very big difference in the way wealth was accumulated in the ancient world yeah. in Jesus' time, and it is today. Yes. Because as you, as you know, uh, it was unusual for people to become wealthy in the ancient world without doing some of those some of those right. very things that you're, that you're referring to. Exactly, the political uh, connections. Yeah, yeah. And just the, or it was by theft or extortion mm-hmm. or oppression, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is one of the reasons why Jesus made the statement the remarkable statement that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom That's right. than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Not mm-hmm. because there's anything, as you say, intrinsically problematic yeah. about wealth, but the way in which it was obtained exactly. was so often morally compromising. That's right. I think he was also saying with wealth come uh, such things as uh, uh, great temptation. 
So he's saying don't allow your wealth, even if it's secured entirely in a peaceful, productive fashion, don't allow your wealth to become the central object of your life. Don't worship wealth. Don't fall uh, uh, into temptation uh, that comes with it. Just be careful. Be mindful of it. But he'd say that about a lot of things. I mean, I think he would say it's easier for a guy in, in great shape uh, to... Uh, climb a fence than a, a man who's broken both legs. That doesn't mean he's opposed to the guy with who's broken his legs. He's just saying you've got more challenges. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, you, uh, you cite several passages in the Gospels that have a lot to do with economics, where, G- where Jesus you know, either makes economic assumptions or um, direct, is directly teaching about yeah. some aspect of economics. So things like the, the parable of the talents. Yes. Uh, the Good Samaritan, uh, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, rendering under, rendering under Caesar that which is yes. Caesar's. Mm-hmm. So let, let, if we could spell out a little bit further, what do you think Jesus had in mind about economics with mm-hmm. some of these, with the parable of talents? We'll start with that. Okay. I think Jesus was uh, primarily uh, calling us all to very high standards of character. Uh, he wasn't opposed to the accumulation of wealth. He wasn't opposed to entrepreneurship. Uh, he wasn't opposed to the wealthy per se. Uh, again, it was it's all a matter of uh, how you obtain your wealth and what you do with it. In the case of the parable of the talents, he tells the story of a man who is leaving uh, his estate for a time and he trusts three men uh, with a substantial but equal degree of his wealth. And he says, I'll be back later and see what you've done with it. He comes back later and he finds that one man uh, has not magnified the wealth in any way. He has the same amount, but he's proud that he's preserved the master's wealth. The second guy actually put it to work, made some investments, and he's got two or three times what the master originally entrusted him with. And the third guy did an even better job at investing it and has like 10 times as much. Well, if Jesus were a socialist... He would uh, upbraid and excoriate the third guy for focusing on the accumulation of wealth. But instead, in the parable, he actually condemns the first guy for his uh, non-creation for of bear, wealth. For burying it in the ground. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And he says the, the third guy is the hero of the story. And the guy from whom Jesus says, we're going to take the talents, the money from the first guy and give it to the third guy because he knows how to create wealth. A socialist would never come to that conclusion. So a socialist would would just would completely even le- level the playing field in terms of outcomes. At the very least, he might even no. go a step further and condemn the third guy for being so productive. Okay. <laughs> All right. What about the parable of the Good Samaritan? Yeah. That that one I think is a little harder to see what the direct connection would be. Yeah. Well, think of the story. Uh, a man is on the road. Uh, and he comes across a man who's in desperate shape, perhaps beaten, robbed, uh, laying along the side of the road. He clearly needs help. And the, the man who becomes known as the Good Samaritan, what does he do? Or what does he not do? He doesn't say to the man in need, oh, well, you need to find a social worker. Or maybe there's a government program for you. Or I'll, I'll drop in a word with the emperor uh, to come back and do something for you. No, he... With his own resources, of his own free will, he immediately pitches in and helps the man. If he had done any of those other things, if he had just said, oh, it's somebody else's responsibility, it's the government's, or I'll get a program going for you, uh, we would not think of him today as the Good Samaritan. We would think of him as the good-for-nothing Samaritan. But he's the Good Samaritan because he 
help the man from his own free will and with his own resources. And sometimes I think what we forget about that is that compassion to really make that work requires economic capacity yeah. to be able to do that. I mean, he, you know, obviously his funds were not unlimited, Yeah. but as I understand it, he essentially did the equivalent of giving the innkeeper his credit card, yeah. saying whatever, whatever charges he has put on my bill. Yeah, good way to put it. If he had been poverty stricken, he couldn't have done that. He couldn't have done any of that. Yeah. So I think we, yeah, I think sometimes we assume that that the that the systems that are the the most productive Mm -hmm. are also the least compassionate. Yeah, yeah. Which I think, in reality, I think just the opposite of that Mm -hmm. is true because it's the systems that produce wealth that Mm -hmm. are able to generate the resources. Yes. Not only for the taxes needed for government, but Mm -hmm. also for private charity and. Uh, things like that. What about the, the, the parable of the workers in the vineyard? That one is a little more puzzling. Cause yeah. Because that seems sort of patently unfair mm-hmm. yeah. to, to what Jesus is prescribing there. It's a fascinating story and uh, or a parable. And when I first read it, I remember just thinking as an economist that, wow, there's a lot of things going on here. There's supply and demand. And anyway, the story goes like this. Uh, a man needs uh, to hire workers to help bring in the, the harvest, presumably grapes. And uh, so he hires workers at the start of a day and pays them, offers to pay them a day's wage. But partway through the day, he realizes, oh, I haven't got enough uh, workers and I got to get this harvest in. So he hires another group of workers, maybe halfway through the day. And to get them, he offers to pay what he had paid the other ones for the whole day or offered to mm-hmm. And then finally, with like an hour left in the day, he realizes, oh, my gosh, my harvest is going to uh, not all get in if I don't hire a few more workers. So he hires some others just for an hour, and he offers to pay them what he offered the first group to, to work all day. Some of those first group uh, come to him later and say, hey, this is not fair. You, These guys that only worked an hour or the ones that only worked half a day, you pay them mm-hmm. as much as you paid us to work all day. And the response is not, oh, yeah, you're right, I have to even this up. Uh-uh. The response is, I didn't cheat you. I paid you what I offered, and you accepted. It's my money. Mm-hmm. And what's going on here, I think, is a defense of contract. You know, two people arriving mutually a uh, mutually mm-hmm. beneficial contract. It's supply and demand. I mean, the guy needed more workers, and to get them at the end of the day, he had to pay what he had to to attract the workers. Uh, and, and so there's and his freedom of association here. If Jesus were a socialist, he would have the, uh, the, the master of being criticized for not paying a proportionate wage. Uh, so he, he arrived at a very unsocialist and pro-capitalist uh, prescription at the end of the day. Yeah, I think I, that's, that's a really good observation because I think most, most people don't see readily in that parable an affirmation of private property. No, it's just think of a fairness it's, issue. It's, it's, the yeah. owner, it's the owner's money, mm-hmm. and this is what he needed to do to attract labor That's right. at the last minute, uh, or else the harvest was not going to be complete. And he kept his word to everybody. What he offered mm-hmm. is what he paid. Um, now, I, I've got some colleagues who are from Canada. Mm-hmm. And we got several friends and neighbors who uh, are from Scandinavia. In mm-hmm. fact, my son had a, a roommate for a while who was from Sweden. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, for one, 
it's not it's not uncommon for them to claim that their countries are actually socialist countries, uh-huh. and we've talked about that. That yeah. that's that's not really accurate, yeah. uh, because throughout Canada and throughout most of Western Europe, mm-hmm. uh, the the balance between government's involvement in the economy mm-hmm. versus the individuals is just is different yes. than it is in the U.S. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and so I asked I asked one of the, one of these friends. Uh, so tell me what the tax rate that you pay mm-hmm. that you pay is mm-hmm. in, in Canada, and I thought that would be a drop the mic moment mm-hmm. uh, when this person said about fifty percent, mm-hmm. but it wasn't, and the reason it wasn't is because this person I, I think actually made a made a fairly compelling case mm-hmm. that they have they have just agreed to a different trade off. Mm-hmm. Than we have in the U.S., they are content to pay much higher taxes, mm-hmm. but they have much higher expectations about what government will provide, particularly in terms of health care and yes. other things. Mm-hmm. What's what's wrong with that mm-hmm. arrangement? It just seems like that it's just it's just a different social yeah. contract yeah. that people have have somewhat. I mean, I think voluntarily yeah. agreed to. Because they're they're counting the cost of their taxes, but the benefits that those bring to them. Yeah. Well, first of all, you you can't say it's voluntary across the board. I mean, if there's one person who says, "Hey, you know, I had a better use for those dollars than what the government put them to after it took them," so it's not entirely voluntary. It's that a some majority of the people who actually voted uh, supported politicians who delivered that. But keep in mind, too, that even in those Scandinavian countries, that consensus has evolved over the years. Uh, they have less of a welfare state, less uh, sky-high taxation today than they had 30, 40 years ago. They tried the 90%, uh, 99% tax rates, and they found that that was disastrous. Because? They, well, because it drove the most productive people away. It uh, stifled the formation of new businesses. It uh, led to high, chronically high unemployment. So uh, Scandinavia, much of it has, uh, all those countries, in fact, have been reducing tax rates much of the last 20 years. They've gone the other direction and, and found it uh, wanting. But nonetheless, they, generally speaking, I think it's fair to say, have decided they're willing to accept a lot more welfare state than, than I am or even the average American. Uh, maybe that's uh, less objectionable when you've got a homogenous population that uh, may not be as entrepreneurial as America. You know, America has a long history of people who are willing to take great risks. And, you know, we had a Western frontier where people had to put everything on the line to go west and so forth. So we are a naturally more uh, risk-taking, uh, entrepreneurial people, I think, who don't respond well to sky-high taxes. Because it takes it takes away the it, it skews the the calculus of risks and benefits. Exactly. At some uh, point, people are going to say, "Look, if if I don't get to keep the rewards, why should I take the risks?" Yeah, and I think that there are some people who say, "I don't even, I don't even want to work harder." Yeah, yeah. The, because the the more the harder I work, the more I make, the less I get to keep. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That I think that's helpful, and I think it's helpful for our listeners to recognize that. Uh, you know, when when we when we talk, there, there are that every tra- every trade off yeah. has costs yeah. to it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, you know, my Canadian friends think think it's just it's morally reprehensible mm-hmm. that so many people can be bankrupted by healthcare bills. Mm-hmm. But you know, I, I wouldn't be thrilled. I, I actually thought 
when this person said they paid a 50% tax rate, mm-hmm. rate, that that discussion would be over. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's yeah. not necessarily true. Yeah. I wonder how many people go bankrupt for other reasons after well, government that, takes half their, their that, money. That, that may also be true. Yeah. Um, so one, I guess one last question. Um, I know historically, if you look throughout the 20th century, uh, there have been periods where throughout the world people have romanticized socialism. Yes. What, what would you say, what advice would you have for people, say, in our, in our millennial Gen Z mm-hmm. generation today who, se- who seem to be romanticizing socialism yeah. again like people did in the 1920s and 30s? Yeah. What, what advice would you have for them? Well, I would start by acknowledging that uh, with few exceptions— they have good intentions. But I would encourage them to be thorough in their thinking. And by being thorough, I mean think of things like all people, not just a few. Sometimes we fall for the, uh, the thing that may seem to work for a handful of people while ignoring the effects on everybody else. I would encourage them also to think long term because uh, there are a lot of things you can do in the here and now for the moment that may seem to be good. But what if they have, as a long-run consequence, the bankruptcy of the country? Would you, would you say, well, that's okay, we'll just deal with it when we get there? Uh, a lot of civilizations that have gone the welfare state route, for instance, they started out on that path thinking, oh, we're going to help people. Uh, the ancient Roman uh, Republic uh, went the welfare state path. And if you could go back to the Romans and say, you know, you started out with good intentions when you started the, the grain dole and the other handouts, but I have to tell you that uh, you ended up bankrupting uh, the morals and the uh, economics of your society, and you got conquered, and you, you're off the map. Uh, maybe you ought to rethink that. But, of course, they can't do that. But we should not be uh, so blind to the lessons of history and economics and thinking long term. We should look very carefully at all the consequences of, of all acts and policies, not just what seemed to be beneficial for a few at the, in the near run. Well, Larry, this is very helpful stuff, very insightful. And what I appreciate is that even though you're trained as an economist, uh, but yet your grasp of the New Testament and the life of Jesus is really good. Oh, and well, I pre- appreciate the way you, you've tried hard to integrate your study of the Bible and your your uh, example of the life of Jesus into your economic theory uh, in some really meaningful ways. So I think I think this will be really helpful for our listeners to to think about this uh, not only from someone who's good in economics but also has a good grasp of the New Testament. Too. Well, so thank you, Scott. I, I appreciate that. Appreciate both both of those aspects coming out in our time today. So uh, really grateful for the chance to to ask you some questions and to to spell out some of these things for us in a little bit more detail. It's much appreciated. My pleasure. This has been an episode of the podcast, Think Biblically, Conversations on Faith and Culture. To learn more about us and today's guest, Lawrence Reed, and to find more episodes, go to biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. That's biola.edu forward slash thinkbiblically. If you enjoyed today's conversation, give us a rating on your podcast app and share it with a friend. Thanks so much for listening, and remember, think biblically about everything.